Welcome back to a special episode of Finest Hours, where we explore amazing true stories of human achievement and influence. On this, the last day of February. Second to last day. Is it a leap year? Happy leap year, dude. Dude, it's a leap year. I thought tomorrow was March. Oh, that's so good because we are still on track because it's taken forever for us to record. But on this, thought, we've got plenty of time. Yeah, I this. thought you knew that and that's why we were recording i had no idea (laughs) but i'm glad that when this will launch we'll still be in february because we hit our timeline which is (laughs) amazing but special episode as many of you probably know february is black history month and if you have been following us you know that on our last episode we said that we were coming out with a special three-part episode on three heroes of black history so i am braden cromar I am joined by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our pick an adjective, Skylar. What do you want to be today? Loquacious. Loquacious executive producer Skylar Williams. Howdy, hey. Happy leap year. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that we want to add here before we dive in? I mean, the coronavirus is going on. We can talk about that and how it's actually not that big of a deal compared to the regular flu, which we all have to deal with every year anyway. I typically die from the flu because Skylar has not responded to a single text message in a couple of weeks, but here we are. Darn coronavirus. Skylar <laughs> is grave is Skylar Williams. Skylar is the real life Kenny from South Park who dies every, almost every week. Without further ado, let's dive into our special episode. For those folks who have been around with us before on our Wonder Women of History episode, we each picked a influential person from history, and we will be taking the lead on the narrative for each. So we will start with Skylar's choice, Robert Abbott. So Robert Abbott, interesting man. He was born uh, November 24th in the year of 1870. So we're going to have to wind back a little bit, but he was born in Georgia, uh, St. Simons or Simmons to freedmen parents, which just means that they were enslaved before the American civil war. Um, Stop saying, um, (laughs) (laughs) it's okay. Um, I I have to to edit every single one of them. I realized that after I just said that (laughs) I didn't need you to say it again. Um, okay, just, um, I, I edit this. So. <laughs> Harmonize with me. Let's get it all out of our systems. Um, no more. No harm. Uh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so Robert's father, Thomas Abbott, ended up dying while Robert was a baby. So his mother remarried a man named John Singstocky. It's German. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but probably Singstocky. That was well done. Thank you. I appreciate that. So he was, John was of African German descent and it was some of his relatives. (laughs) I didn't know how to word that. Some of his relatives have been known to have joined the third Reich 
in the 1930s. Dun, dun, dun. So, so some controversy in Robert's family. Indeed. Robert ended up studying printing trade from 1892 to 1896 at Hampton Institute, which is now known as Hampton University and is also known as a historically black college in the state of Virginia. Some cool things about him while he was at the Institute is that he participated in the choir and also the quartet. So musically talented. He I'm so want... glad we harmonized our ums to lead into this. Then, <laughs> yes. That just, now it actually works and has a place in the episode. I Except don't... I don't know what we call a three person, like a, a tritet. I, I don't know, I guess. Guys, fun fact. Hydra. My dad, all throughout my youth, sang in a barbershop choir. And what? I would have to listen to stupid barbershop choruses and quartets when I was a kid all throughout my childhood. Uh, no, that's sweet. He's I got like that, that recorded, right? I mean, it's kind of cool now, now that I'm older and like nerdy stuff is cool, but it was kind of stupid when I was a kid and had to go to the stupid things. Nerdy stuff. <laughs> so anyway, he uh, wanted to keep learning. So he ended up getting a law degree from Kent College of Law in Chicago. And that was in 1898. So he settles there in Chicago after he gets his law degree. And in 1905, he founded the Chicago Defender newspaper. And what's interesting is that the initial investment was 25 cents. So if we calculate that in today's money, that will be $7. So pretty crazy that all he had to do was put in $7 and he started a newspaper. That really is a crazy feat. That crazy, crazy, very cool. So his landlady really helped push Robert when he got down. And because of this, once he got wealthy, he ended up buying her an eight room house. Eight room house in Chicago. In, in the thirties and forties. How many rooms is that in today's rooms? <laughs> <laughs> Probably ask, like ask six and a half GTV because they probably cut it into a million pieces and like it, it's like a container house in there somewhere now. <laughs> so it's like two homes now, but you can only imagine how much that costed, right? We don't know how many bathrooms, so they might've had an outhouse, but eight rooms, great house. Great house. Great house. So Abbott's big push was for job opportunities and social justice within the African-American communities he also was a big persuader of African-Americans leaving the segregated Jim Crow South for Chicago and for other Northern cities. I would do the same. <laughs> During that time. Yes. <laughs> let's um, let's still, get out of there. I still I'm probably, s- I've been to the South. <laughs> just kidding. Our Southern listeners. We love you. The South is great. Very charming. Yeah, it just depends on what state, because when I was in West Virginia, there were some roads where even white people shouldn't go down, so. (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay. Uh, Anyway, back to the story. I don't even know what that means, but we don't need to talk about it on here. Mountain folk. Not mountain folk. Mountain folk. With the banjo. If you get that reference... I, I, I don't know. I'm just images okay. of images of homemade moonshine and 
Yeah, never mind. <laughs> Let's continue. <laughs> Freak myself out. <laughs> Please, no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, as I big, give a big um, because I love that um, one. Um, um. Kyler's favorite word. <laughs> Let's see. So, the African-American Union, known as... This is a great name. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters. Do we know why they gave themselves that name? Well, they were railroad porters and they were African-American and they all call each other brothers. What is a porter though? A porter? Is this another word of the day? Skyler has our word of the day. Dun-dun-dun-dun! Word of the day is But only if you can find a definition. An elementary school definition. An elementary school definition of a railroad porter is... They assist passengers at railway stations and handle the loading, unloading, and distribution of luggage and parcels. Ah, so they're the flight attendants of the the 19th and 20th century. Got it. Yes. So they had a union, and because they were so widespread, they were able to help push the Chicago Defender to many African Americans throughout the United States. And because of this, by the early 1920s, the Defender's circulation had reached 200,000 and was credited with the contribution of the Great Migration. Now, this Great Migration was 1.5 million African Americans moved from the South to Northern cities and the Midwest. And this went from the 1920s all the way up until the 1940s. During this time period, the Defender became known as America's Black Newspaper. The success resulted in Abbott becoming one of the first self-made millionaires of African American descent. Abbott was a fighter and a defender of rights, so he listed nine goals as the Defender's Bible. Um, I don't want to go through all of them, but I'll list just a couple, um, which are American race prejudice must be destroyed. I love it. Um, Opening up all trade unions to blacks as well as whites. Uh, Gaining representation in all departments of the police forces over the entire United States. I love it. Federal legislation to abolish lynching. I love it. And then full enfranchisement of all American citizens. I love it. What? For the record, did you guys know there was just a bill passed to abolish lynching at a federal level to like make it a federal crime? Had there not been before? I mean, <laughs> no, there had not been. But I mean, like murder is kind of where that would qualify, I guess. Yeah. But people like people were pushing for this forever back then when it kind of mattered. And now I don't know that it matters as much because it would just count as murder. But like, yeah. anyway, it was weird. That was like a week ago, I think. It was that's in, like the last wild, week. but that's also very relevant to our topic today. So thank you for bringing that up. But that is absolutely wild. That is wild. As you can see, we're always fighting. (laughs) Always fighting. 2020, baby. 100 years later. Yep. So Abbott set May 15th, 1917 
as, quote, the Great Northern Drive. In his weeklies, he would end up including really nice pictures of Chicago, and in his classifieds, he would list housing options so that people could prepare to come to Chicago and to find a house and to be able to live, find jobs, which is pretty amazing. So he set up a great system where they were able to find what they needed and be able to prosper in that city. Yeah. I mean, nobody was, nobody else was doing this at the time. Nobody else was, was taking the opportunity to use their help voice. provide people that have been disenfranchised. And then like, this is really cool. He was truly one of a kind. Yeah. So in 1919, um, the governor of Illinois, Frank Loudon, appointed Abbott to the Chicago Commission on Race Relations. During a time period, I don't know the exacts, but 5,000 African Americans were arriving to the city weekly. And so they needed someone that would be able to help them come into the city and find the housing and find the jobs. And that's what he was already doing with the newspaper, which is pretty amazing. Because he was so focused on other people, he ended up, um, towards the end of his life, aiding a family, um, the Captain Charles Stevens family, who Captain Charles enslaved his birth father before the emancipation. And with that tie, Robert ended up helping most of his family during the depression and then ended up paying for the education of the Stevens family, which is absolutely amazing. He was able to turn his other cheek and see people as they were or as they could be. Abbott ended up dying of Bright's disease in 1940 while he was in Chicago did leave his newspaper to his nephew, which leads me to believe that he wasn't married and he didn't have any kids. And that's why he left the newspaper to his nephew. Very nice. Robert Abbott. What a great story. Reaching out and, and providing means for the disenfranchised black community of America. I love it. You sure say I love it a lot. I do love it though. I love everything about it. Do you love, love it. it as much as um? I don't. I don't love anything as much as um. As I sarcastically say that as the editor-in-chief of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> How much you guys say um? Literally. That's me crazy. But let's move forward to 1913, the birth of a... Um, the birth... Yeah, Dang. Of what? What was you it? see what, what I was just it? did there? <laughs> birth of um that was his real name <laughs> who knew that um birth. started in 1913 yeah. <laughs> it did actually you know what's really fun is we can look on google and see the usage of words oh. over time um oh it's actually a german word meaning around so how about any time that we want to say um let's just, just condition ourselves to say around <laughs> and we'll see how stupid it sounds Around. So, James Cleveland Owens was born in 1913 to a poor sharecropper family in Alabama in the post-antebellum South, which, Hayden, let's do another elementary school definition, shall we? Would you please tell us what a sharecropper is? Of course. 
A sharecropper is a tenant farmer who gives a part of each crop as rent. So essentially, you do all the work, you give up some of your stuff, and, and you're allowed, you're allowed to, to use land. the land. Okay. All right, so that's a sharecropper, and uh, James Cleveland Owens was born a, into a sharecropper family in Alabama. So that sucks. I'm sorry. That's just, I know uh, our listeners from Alabama, I'm sorry. That sucks. But he worked on the farm as a child, picking up to 100 pounds of cotton each day, which sounds insane because cotton does not weigh very much. So the amount of cotton he would have to pick to, be, to equal 100 pounds has to be absolutely insane. He was frequently sick as a child and had multiple close encounters with death. He started to develop some boils on his skin, but not having adequate health care or any money, his mother cut out the boils using a hot knife. James passed out from the pain and nearly died, but recovered from the boils and they, they never resurfaced. When he was nine years old, the family moved to Cleveland, Ohio to seek better economic conditions, probably partly due to His Abbott's name. Oh, well, no, probably <laughs> due to, to Abbott's call to, um, to around, <laughs> probably due um... to, probably due to Abbott's call to uh, convince around great migration migration to the, <laughs> the, to the northern migration. cities where there was more opportunity for economic prosperity his elementary school teacher thought that he had said his name was jesse due to his southern accent and being too shy to correct the teacher the name just naturally stuck he didn't just call himself james he called himself jc he went by jc and you, you new boy what's your name i'm jc and she's like Jesse? No, Jesse. Ma'am. Yeah, yes, ma'am. But yeah, being being too shy to correct the teacher, the name naturally stuck. And his father was like, Why is everyone calling you Jesse? And he's like, Well, that's just what people call me. He started competing in track and field in his junior high years, practicing before school because he was working in the afternoons to help support his family. In high school, he won both the high school national championship in the 100 yards with a time of 9.4 seconds which is fast man fast and which is about one second per 10 yards about one second per 10 yards so that that translates i mean sorry 10 meters meters. 10 meters Um, sorry fast four seconds per 10 yards he had also won the long jump after measuring 24 feet nine and three quarters of an inch his athletic ability would earn him the opportunity to compete at Ohio State University, which we all hate. We all hate Ohio State. We have to get that out. We all love Jesse Owens, but we all hate Ohio State University. You can't like a school whose mascot is a worthless nut. <laughs> a worthless nut? That is what the Ohio Buckeye State is. Buckeye? Literally, a Buckeye is a nut. That you can't use for anything. Listen, we all hate it's Ohio State, and we know that Ohio State is just a bandwagon school, and listen, not that great of an academic school as well. <laughs> Let's just call it as it is. We hate you, Ohio State, but we love Jesse Owens. And was that Ohio State? I like Ohio State. No, you don't. <laughs> it was at Ohio State where he achieved one of the most impressive athletic feats of all time. 
Jesse Owens, in a span of 45 minutes, broke three world records and tied a fourth. And it, that fourth was very controversial because they were using hand timing at this time. And some of the hand timers did say that he did actually break that world record, but they did go with the slowest time on the reader, probably because they were racist. Let me tell you how impressive that is. In our track days, in the span of 45 minutes, we were putting up mediocre times <laughs> in the mile and two mile and eight. In a, yeah, in a span <laughs> of two days. just the two oh, mile. And, and the span of two days, yes. <laughs> Not uh, 45 like, minutes. Like 45 minutes. And it was rumored that he was competing on a bad back that day because he was kind of horsing around with his fraternity brothers the night before and had injured his back. So he only, he only mentioned that on the fourth one when he tied it, he was like, oh, I have a bad back. <laughs> That's actually not true. He, he woke up in the morning, the morning that he would break all these records and couldn't even dress himself. So he had to, he had to get some assistance there and kind of loosen up before he could compete. And, Oh my gosh, like this is widely regarded as one of the most impressive athletic performances of all time. We love Jesse Owens. But despite his massive success in then the world's most popular sport, he was forced to live off campus and had to order takeout at restaurants rather than sitting inside with his white teammates. Owens would qualify for three events in the 1936 Olympic Games, which were to be held in... Berlin, Germany, under the Nazi regime. I mean, this is a big deal. Chills down my spine right now. Adolf Hitler originally opposed the Olympic Games due to the goals of peaceful cooperation with other nations. You kind of see how he wasn't very into that. But he was convinced by the German minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, that the Games could serve as a showcase of German racial superiority. Hitler was obsessed with purifying the German race. In his book, Mein Kampf, he would openly and unapologetically chastise the Jews for the fall of Germany during and after the First World War. When he seized power in Germany, the Nazi party began harassing Jews, banning their businesses, and forcing them out of cities to live in ghettos. Anti-Semitic propaganda was posted all throughout German cities. The Nazis also instituted a state-sponsored breeding program, Liebensborn, where Aryan women were selected to have children with SS officers. In the Hitler Youth Program, young girls would attend camps and even return home pregnant. Messed up. Yeah, like 15-year-olds. Though World War II would not be sparked for another three years, many countries were considering boycotting the Berlin Olympics, the biggest of which being the United States, home of the best athletes. The black athletes were outraged because here they were facing discrimination in America and their Olympic dreams were in the hands of white bureaucrats considering boycotting the games due to the Jewish discrimination in Europe. A lot of people would think it's not that big of a deal, but when you dedicate four years of your life to go to the Olympics, it's a pretty big deal. Oh, like, it's like totally. it's like today with the coronavirus, they might cancel the Tokyo Olympics. And people are like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But it's like these athletes have spent four years of their lives training for this yeah. moment. It's it's kind of a big deal. Especially the like best. They've spent you, about three weeks. Yeah, with the coronavirus, <laughs> they have been canceling shows we've uh, my clients i work in the marketing industry and my clients have had some international shows that have been canceled that they were planning on attending i know the basel world which is like a jewelry and watch 
show every year where all the major brands come out has been canceled. So it's a big deal and a growing concern, but I'm hoping it dies down in the summer Olympics because. Wow. That's crazy. We got an email today saying that none of our travel has been delayed or banned. We're hardcore. <laughs> You're so cool. Hayden. To Skyler's point though, it is a really, really big deal because as an athlete, that is your entire life. The amount of work that you put into it and to have your Olympic hopes and dreams in the hands of other people. That's really, that's really tough to deal with. But Avery Brundage, the president of the American Olympic committee did take a supervised trip to Berlin to survey the conditions. Joseph Goebbels had the streets cleaned and anti-Semitic propaganda taken down during the visits and during the Olympic games. When Brundage returned, he convinced the American Olympic committee to participate in the games, despite broad-scale discussions to boycott them. When Owens arrived in Berlin, he was treated very well by the Germans, and many were very excited to see this world's fastest man compete. So on the first day of the games, Owens won the 100-meter dash, decimating the competition, which included German competitors. On the second day, he would also win the long jump, then this was the most documented event of Jesse Owens' Olympic Games. He scratched on the first two attempts, but German competitor Lutz Long befriended Owens and would help Owens by setting a mark from which to jump on. So if I have the story right, and you can fact check us if you want to, because then, but we don't want to hear the answer. We'll just like live with this. So, so in the long jump, there is a white line from which you jump from. Owens was stepping on the line, which in American competition was fine. You could do that. That was not illegal. But in the international level of competition, that was illegal and he was scratched. So Lutz Long helping Owens set a mark using a towel or a rag that he set six inches short of the line from which Owens could jump from. So Owens using this mark beat Lutz Long in the long jump and won the gold medal. It was really cool that Lutz Long helped him, even though that it would mean that Lutz Long would sacrifice his medal. But it was very clear that Long and Owens were the top two competitors in this event. Owens would also go on to win the 200-meter dash. Owens was only qualified for three events, but the two Jewish-American sprinters were scratched from the 4x100-meter relay by Brundage. This was very controversial, and it was widely speculated that this was to spare Hitler the embarrassment of losing to Jewish athletes. So Owens and another black teammate would replace them. Owens, of course, would win, making him the first African-American athlete to win four gold medals in a single Olympic Games. Now, what happened next is widely controversial, and the truth is yet to be agreed upon. But it was said that Hitler, out of frustration at Owens' dominating performance, walked out of the stadium. Though both German and American officials would try to cover up or downplay Hitler's displeasure with Owens' four victories, there is no denying that he was furious. Joseph Goebbels, again, the minister of propaganda, would say that he thought it was unfair that people like Jesse Owens, very clearly referring to black people, should be barred from the Olympic competition because you might as well have deer or gazelle on your team. Owens was one of the most dominant athletes in American history, and he competed with grace in the face of the most extreme forms of racism in both America and Nazi Germany. 
he would become a civil rights hero and shatter the Nazi ideology of German racial superiority, although he was never formally recognized in the White House, which was an American tradition. He still to this day has not been formally recognized for his incredible achievements in Germany. We love Jesse Owens. I selected somebody named Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier was a boxing legend. So, Joe Frazier was born in Beaufort, South Carolina. Also the home of Skyler. Who was it that was, a, that was also born there? Who was it? I think he was small. <laughs> Robert Smalls. Ooh, Robert and Smalls. what did he do? He was a naval legend. That's right. He, if you haven't listened to episode three, go back and listen to episode three after this episode, of course, because the Robert Small story is a great story. So Beaufort, South Carolina puts out some great people. Joe Frazier was the youngest of 12 children and his parents were sharecroppers. So there's our word of the day again. And so as we know, being a sharecropper puts you in a really difficult position to get out of. So his family never really had much money. Joe Frazier quit school at age 13 and was on his own by age 15. At that time, he moved up north to New York City with the assistance of an older brother who he would be living with. Work was really hard to come by in New York, so he ended up making the decision to go to Philadelphia. He had harbored dreams of becoming a boxer. He looked up to, I believe his name was Joe Lewis, who was a boxer. Cromar, who was he? Joe Lewis, another African-American boxer during the 1930s, would beat James J. Braddock, but would say that James J. Braddock is one of the toughest competitors that he never competed against. Cinderella Man's a great movie, by the way, guys. Go watch it. And so this was Joe Frazier's idol, so he always dreamed of becoming a boxer. When he ended up in Philadelphia, he did find work, and he was working for a slaughterhouse. So what he would do would be to punch giant pieces of meat that were hanging from the ceiling. And so this actually inspired a scene in the Rocky series. I love that scene in Rocky, too. While working at the slaughterhouse, also began visiting a local gym, and he would go and get into fights there. Not just your typical fights. When they would box, they would push themselves pretty hard. And so rumor has it that many great boxers ended their careers very early on because they were so serious when they were sparring at these gyms. And so that is the environment that Joe Frazier came out of. It was brutal. Guys would break their ribs just in sparring all the time and then wouldn't be able to compete because they broke their ribs in a sparring session. Boxing was really dangerous in the earlier days. I mean, it's dangerous now, but it was really, really dangerous. And so as he had been training, he was still an amateur when the 1964 Tokyo Olympics came around, speaking of Tokyo. And so one thing that was really interesting was he got beat and he didn't make the team. When did we speak about Tokyo? Coronavirus. Did we say anything about Tokyo? 2020 Olympics. Olympics. Yeah, the Olympics. Oh, duh. Okay. (laughs) The Olympics are coming back to Tokyo. (laughs) That's amazing. Guess how many years it's been? 36 plus 20-ish. 2020 minus 1964. 56 years. give it to me. 56 years. (laughs) 
Wait. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just checking. 56. <laughs> Second guessing myself. Joe Frazier gets beaten in his bid to make the 1964 U.S. Olympic team to be boxing in Tokyo. But as fate would have it, the person that beat him ended up breaking his thumb and was unable to compete. So Joe made the team. Joe went from barely missing the team to becoming the 1964 heavyweight gold medalist, which is nice. so dope. So cool. This, An alternate. This I was, love it. This was a time period where only amateurs could compete. And so after 1964 as a gold medalist, he becomes a professional in 1965. And so when he's training in Philly, his running route would actually take him up the stairs of the art museum. Many people have seen this scene represented in Rocky as well. So that was also taken from Joe Frazier in Philadelphia. Which is really cool when you think about it, because some of the scenes in Rocky, including that stair scene, some of those scenes are the most iconic scenes in the entire film industry. So it's really cool that Frazier was, was an inspiration to that. And now as he's pro, it's 1965. Some people decide that they want to invest in him and in his training. They end up buying an old building that was built in the 1890s that had only seen industrial use up until that point. And they converted it into a gym for Joe to train in exclusively. And this was where he would prepare for all of his historic fights. 1970 comes around and he becomes the heavyweight champion of the world and he holds that title until 1973. In 1971, a fight deemed the fight of the century, he faces Muhammad Ali, where Joe Frazier defeats him. This occurred in Madison Square Gardens in New York. It Which, was a pretty dang big deal. It is a huge deal. I mean, Muhammad Ali is still widely accepted as the best boxer of all time. So to beat Muhammad Ali, oof, that is, that is a massive, massive deal. Muhammad Ali is another level, man. Another level. Inhuman. Muhammad Ali ended up having five losses throughout his career. He fought a lot more than Joe Frazier did. Joe Frazier's record ended up being 32 wins, four losses, and one draw. He only lost to two people, twice to Muhammad Ali in 1974 and in 1975, and twice to George Foreman. But he did at least get all up in George Foreman's grill. <laughs> LOL. LOL, I love it. Dad love jokes it. for the win. Dad <laughs> jokes. my dry dad joke for the day. So good. Dad joke gold. <laughs> now, Joe Frazier ended up winning 73% of his matches by knockout. Uh, Muhammad Ali was in the 60%, and George Foreman was up in the 80%. And so he was somewhere in between that level as far as how hard he was hitting. He's best known as the nemesis to Muhammad Ali. He's often cited as truly hating him. However, he always fought racism where he saw it, and he always kind of fought it within the system. So he met President Nixon once and requested that President Nixon give Muhammad Ali his license back. His license had been suspended for one reason or another. To this, he's credited as saying... because he was so fast. What? <laughs> I mean, that, that must is, be it. That is cool, though, because as an athlete, if I have a nemesis, cough, cough, American Fork, and they lost their license, I would be like, really, I forget about them. Pretty cool that Joe Frazier was willing to help out Ali in that, in that situation and get him back into the ring. 
very true. Muhammad Ali was very good at pushing Joe Frazier's buttons, and so they really just despised each other. Muhammad Ali is cited as calling Joe Frazier an Uncle Tom, meaning that he wouldn't fight back, and he wouldn't fight back against racism, but he always fought it against the system. When an interviewer asked Joe Frazier about this, he said, you know, I may be an Uncle Tom, but I was Uncle Tomming for Ali. And he was referring to the time that he asked the President of the United States a favor on his behalf. Now, the reason that I chose Joe Frazier to highlight here is because he rose up from poverty in an inner city to become a gold medalist, and he began in a public gym. Once he became wealthy, he went on to buy that gym, his gym, from the investors that had invested in him. And he assisted in the training of many boxers from 1975 to the year 2000 at this gym. He also opened it to the public and to the youth of the inner city. So he was an idol and an example to the youth that would come to this gym. They all were able to look up to him and see what kind of success could rise from the poorest of circumstances. Joe Frazier passed away in 2011 due to liver cancer, but posthumously the city of Philadelphia began to really recognize him. The street near his old gym has been renamed in his honor as Smokin' Joe Frazier Street. I love that they put Smokin' Joe in it. Joe Frazier actually sold this building in the gym, but it was put on the historical buildings list. He was also given a statue a couple years after his death, which was a really big deal because many people struggled with the fact and the controversy that there was a Rocky Balboa statue in Philadelphia, which actually just began as a movie prop for Rocky Three, but became a big deal to Philadelphia. But many people were upset with this because Rocky Balboa was essentially a fictional character, even though so much of what happens in the movie was based off of actual events. But there was no statue of a true boxing legend from Philadelphia until a few years after his death where he received a statue. And what's interesting with all of this is his daughter was quoted as saying that none of this, none of the names or the statues or the awards really meant anything to her father, Joe. He was always a humble person, and so it may be best that some of this happened after his death, and that's when he was recognized, or else he may have even fought against it. Nice. Joe was a class act guy. I like Joe. One of his crowning accomplishments was he did actually cameo on The Simpsons, along with (laughs) many other celebrities, but there's a great scene of him and Homer in the bar, and if I can pull a sound clip, I'll pull a sound clip. Keep those pick legs coming, Mo. You clean me out, Smoking Joe. What's the matter, Homer? Come up on too tight. I miss my couch. I know how you feel. You lost the couch. I lost the heavyweight championship. <laughs> heavyweight championship. There's like three of those. That couch was one of a kind. Homer, I know things are tough now. But one day you'll be walking along and you'll see a piece of furniture you can love just as much. Hey, Fraser, shut up! Ronnie, you've been riding my back all night. Oh, yeah? Can you step outside? Let's do it. And he did also appear in Rocky 3, I think, which is pretty cool. Guys, that's all we that's all we picked for today, and there are so, so many more stories that we could go off of, but this is just who we chose so we hope you enjoyed the show and with that we had a lot of fun with this one but with that skylar i'll let you close us out here all right guys 
Hope you enjoyed the show. I already said that. <laughs> I just want to let them know that they needed to enjoy it because if I they did... also hope that they enjoyed the show. Okay. Dang let it. Me just he was put leading that in there. he was leading into something there and you ruined it's it. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. But anyway, please, 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 please subscribe, review, rate, give us five stars. Tell your friends that we are the best historical podcast that you've ever listened to. And if you want more information or anything like that, follow our Instagram at the finest hours podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us, want to send a few emails, you can email us at finest hours pod at gmail.com. That's all I have. May you enjoy your leap day as much as we shall enjoy your leap day, which I didn't even know existed. We get an extra day this year in 2020. So I hope it doesn't suck as bad as 2019 did. It's a free day. Real life doesn't begin until March 1st. 2019 was great. We launched our podcast in 2019, so no complaints there. But thank you for joining us on this week's episode, and we'll be back with you in a couple weeks with another amazing true story. Should I do like a boxing ring? Like a ding, ding. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, do that. Or or my best Rocky impression. I didn't hear no bell. Was that pretty good or is that totally sucked? Next episode will be on Alexander Nobel. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever his name was.